Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link Nurtured Foundations online course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations online course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations online course. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. I am Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I'm joined by my co-host, Corey, from For Nutrients Sake. And in today's episode, we decided to cover what might be a challenging topic for some of our listeners, which is learning how to cook and maybe even love organ meats. And for that, today's guest has been mentioned on this podcast probably like 50 times. We talk about her a lot. Um, she's been hugely influential in my own personal life, and I consider her to be a dear friend and a mentor. And so, Corey, do you want to go ahead and share the bio for our guest, please? All right. So Janine helps conscientious – oh, gosh, Janine, why would you have to put that word in there? Conscientious people learn how to prep and cook or- organ meats so that they can feel confident in the kitchen, align with their values, nourish their family, and have – more energy for the things they truly love in life. She dedicated herself to cooking organ meats every week over a decade ago, knowing that she'd never have the health freedom she desired without having a loving relationship with this sacred food. She started awfullygoodcooking.com in 2017 to make these resources accessible to all and the Liver Lover Challenge in 2022. So that's last year. Um, she has spoken at the Wise Traditions um, Conference, the Weston A. Price Foundation's conference, uh, in 2019, 2021, and 2022. So, Janine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. How exciting. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like we need like a fanfare. I maybe I should find I one of those like a fanfare. Um, you know, what is that called? Sound effect. Yeah, like yeah. That's probably that's way too much work though. I'm not going to do that. But just know that if we had one, we would play it. Yeah. 
All right, Janine. So on the Modern Ancestral Mamas podcast, we start every episode with a question related to the topic of the show. And then we each take turns answering that question. So we thought, let's just go right into the topic. And why don't you share with us what is your favorite organ meat to eat, I guess, or cook? Either one of those. Eat or cook. Um, I feel like this is such a tricky question. I have such a loving relationship with all the organ meats now. I just feel like they're such special foods and um, I get so excited about all of them. But uh, I mean, let's be honest, it has to be liver because I, it just makes me feel so good. And I and I just have like this sense that um, in my adult life, like self-care is really important. And, you know, like at least like 51% has to go to me because otherwise there's like nothing left, right? You can give, 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 but then all of a sudden you've run out. And so I feel like every time I make liver, it's just like an act of like self-love and self-care. And um, I don't know, it like fills my spirit. It feels like so generous to share it with my family. I Everything about it feels so good to me. I just, I love it. And um, I, I love serving it. And I love when my people eat it, right? When I make meals that are awesome and delicious and they, and they scoop them up and I'm like, ah, oh, this is the best. I would say second to that is menudo. It's like tripe trotters and marrow in a bowl. And my kids love it. And it's one of their favorite foods. Everyone asks for it for their birthdays and stuff. So you know, it's a lot of work, so I don't make it all the time, but I will make it for birthdays for sure. And then, you know, whenever we get access to tripe and um, man, that feels so good. I mean, tripe is such a delicious meat. It's just like so tender and delicious. And, um, and then also like, just like the idea of like eating marrow and like all the skin and stuff and the trotters, like that is, that is definitely top of the list too. So probably those two things. Okay. So um, with liver though, do you have a favorite animal liver or is it oh. all the livers? Okay, so I would actually say that even though I could not swallow it when I first started eating it, I would definitely say beef liver. Chicken liver is more mild and I was able to eat it from the beginning. And my first liver experiences um, outside of my house for like chicken liver pâtés and stuff, I feel like there's really some delicious dishes, but I would definitely have to say at this point, it's just like a straight up sauteed beef liver. Love it. Love it so much. <laughs> okay, Christine, your turn. Um, I have definitely come to love liver, but thanks to Janine, I actually enjoy tongue more. I think tongue is so delicious. Um, and I would say that one's my favorite because even though I am eating liver regularly, especially the sauteed form, there's still just a little bit something that holds me back. I'm not a hundred percent there yet. So, um, especially for beef liver, I would say for chicken liver, that's a piece of cake. Um, but yeah, the stronger beef liver flavor. Um, so that's why tongue is my favorite and it's just like melts in your mouth and yeah, it's so, so delicious. It just goes with everything. I think you, you can mm-hmm. do anything with tongue. That's my choice. Corey, we saved the best for last. Yeah. Okay. We're, we are all know that you two have way more clout in this arena than I do, which is fine. Um, <laughs> I think if I'm going to pick some, if I'm going to pick one for flavor and edibility for my personal self, I'd probably go with chicken livers, pate mm-hmm. yeah. with lots of butter on sourdough. <laughs> Sounds awesome. See, that way, like I can do that and not and not be like grossed out. Actually, I told Ryan the other day that um, 
I was like, you know what? I really, really have been craving chicken liver pate. And he was like, what? Because, you know, I used to eat it just because I felt like I needed to. Um, but the other day I was like, I really feel like I, I really just want to eat that. And it's been a long time. I haven't made it in a while because of the whole move. And then, I don't know, we processed all our chickens. And then this I made a stupid move when we processed these chickens. And I didn't freeze the livers in a, um, like I put all of the livers in one bag. And so then I have a bag of 40 livers and that's Mm. too much to do all at once. So then I'm like really overwhelmed by it Mm -hmm. and I just haven't done anything with them. Um, so anyway, that's my sad story on that. That's what you're going to do with them is you're going to make a lot of pate because you can freeze it. That's a lot. I don't yeah. even know if I have a pan you, big enough to cook all that. It is 40, 40 individual mm-hmm. livers. I don't know how many pounds that is. I don't know. Probably only. It can't be more than like four pounds. Yeah, but whenever I've ever made liver, like chicken liver pate before, I've only made, what is this size? Like, yeah. You know, like yeah, the jam, little sort of jam jar. But you can yeah. just do that. Just get a bunch of them and freeze them. And then they're all in individual portions. No, but I mean, like, that's how much liver I've made. Like, oh, like a, in total, like maybe a what is that size? Like a pint, right? Like a pint? No, yeah. no, no. Are no, you talking if if it's this size, no, you're that's even about less than a pint. Yeah. No, no, yeah, no. It's like tiny. Like, I don't know. I can't show you very well. Okay, and maybe it's oh, a pint. It's about. I actually pint. feel like cooking big batches of pate is easier than cooking small batches of pate because I can measure yeah, no, out the spices in like bulk, and it's just so much easier. And I just like you know we'll put all the salt into the food processor. I don't have to like try to season like the little bit of liver that I have in the pan or something. I just measure it in bulk and uh, throw it in. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. You got to just do it, Corey. That's yeah. Yeah. yeah okay, because you're going to have chicken livers like around the, I mean, we're halfway there. Yeah. Um, well, so your next slaughter. Yeah. Our next slaughter is coming up in like two or three weeks. So, oh my gosh, and, so soon. And at that point we're going to have yeah. <laughs> way more. Okay, well, I guess right, you're not doing it right now because now you're back in chicken season where you'll be processing every couple of weeks. Yeah, well, now I have to, yeah, well, I, I got to deal with the livers that are in my freezer before I add more livers to my freezer. So make the pate. Um, Just take it out. Commit okay, to do fine. it one day. You're right. One day, like yeah. tomorrow. Like tomorrow. <laughs> like I'll um, text you. <laughs> um, that's a good idea. You should do that. I have to like go to the store and buy some bacon though. Cause that's the way, that's the only way I make it with bacon. Well, well that's anyway. one of the best ways. Yeah. yeah. So don't. Okay. Uh, let us, let's start out. Janine, will you give us a definition of organ meats or awful? Are those two words interchangeable? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. I think they're interchangeable. So- awful is originally like it falls off of the carcass of the animal. So it's coming off the, the carcass. It's, um, yeah, it's awful. It's, you know, I think it's a funny word. People are not really sure how to pronounce it, but you know, it really is a play on words there. And uh, organ, I tend, I don't know, I use both, I guess, but I say organ meats a lot. So there were many years I didn't know how to pronounce awful. So I didn't say it. And that's why I use organ meats more. I just wasn't sure. It is funny. Cause you know, you say, oh, it's awful. And people are mm-hmm. like, wait a minute. <laughs> Exactly. I, I mean, I, I knew that like, I thought that that was just like, it was, I didn't know if that was actually the correct pronunciation. Like I knew you could say it like that, but I didn't know if it was the correct pronunciation. I, I now feel fairly confident that it is, but uh, yeah. I mean, I, I named my site awfully good cooking, but. You know. I always thought it was Ofal. So that's really, 
I'm glad. That yeah, I didn't ever really knew if it was awful or like mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly. So, but I, I feel confident that's awful now, and that's just great because it plays so well. Okay, so tell us what are um, like what are I know it's a big category, right? But like, what are the main ones that people are sure? Have I think access- yeah, what you, like if you have access to a farmer, I think the most likely cuts that you're going to have access to are going to be liver, kidney, heart, and tongue. Those are the main ones. Those are the main ones that farmers get back. And then um, there's a host of a bunch more that are just kind of tricky, like brains. Uh, some states, actually, I don't think that they let you. It really depends on if the animal, how the animal is being processed, right? If it's um, getting processed through the neck, then the brains could be available. If it's through the head, then you'll never get the brains from that processor. Um, so sometimes you just can't get them. Sometimes uh, farmers just aren't asking for them, but the processor could give them, but the processor often doesn't want to because it's a lot of work if you've, of course you haven't, but um, I've, I've tried to cut through many skulls. I've used, you know, saws and cleavers and all sorts of stuff. And I've literally ended up with like blood and like chunks of brain on this ceiling in my kitchen, which used to be like a 12 foot kitchen, like a ceiling. It was like a really tall kitchen. I have really, I mean, if you have a butcher or a processor that has like a bandsaw or something, you know, like, but then you want to preserve the brain. It's a, tr- it's a tricky operation to get the brains out. So um, processors, even when they can do it, they often don't want to, but I still insist that you should assert with your farmer that they have the right to get all of the cuts back, especially the most nutrient dense ones. Um, and yeah, so tripe is tricky. I think that technically it's supposed to be processed, like bleached and everything. So you can get fresh tripe or green tripe. If you know somebody who's processing on the farm and they want to save it for you and give it to you, and then either they have to process it or you do. And um, it basically smells like a barn because it's full of grass. And um, like the stomach, the stomach right? all the stomachs. Yeah. Four stomachs and a ruminant. So um, sheep and cows and all. And uh, so, yeah, that's the stomach. Those are that's hard to get. I mean, you can buy conventional tripe in a lot of places, but uh, like ethnic grocery stores and even probably some Walmarts. But um But yeah, with respect to getting like a pastured organic one or something, you have to get it from a farmer who's processing on farm and is willing to either hose it off for you or you're willing to take it and hose it off. So that's tricky. The thymus gland is, that's like sweetbreads. And um, that's kind of tricky because it's actually a gland that um, like basically creates the T cells and then they migrate into the lymph nodes where they'll live for the rest of your life. And then we also have one. But then when you're an adolescent, that whole gland basically shrinks up and just becomes like a nodule of tissue kind of in the throat. And so, um, so you can only get it on young animals. So like a veal or a lamb or something like that. But then once the animal has matured and they like have all of their immune system intact, that, that whole gland kind of goes away. So you can only get that in young animals. So that's kind of trickier to get. Um, testicles, I think that, you know, they have to castrate all the bulls. So a lot of farmers could have access to them, but maybe don't save them because they don't think that they can sell them. But if you ask, it's possible that you could get them. If they have a ranching operation, they should have plenty of access to male animals. Um, yeah, so those are trickier to get, but they're definitely in the book. I think, you know, some people count like cheeks and oxtail and stuff like that. And I marrow and, and I never did. And so that's why like, I have so few recipes on my site, not because I haven't cooked them so much over the years because I like, didn't feel like they were like quote real organs and that people needed like real help figuring out how to cook them. But now I get so many questions and um, I'm, I'm committed to just adding a lot more recipes in those categories too, even though I kind of originally thought in my mind of awful as like actual organs, 
like organs of the animal. And so like the brain, the stomach, you know, the lungs, the heart, kidney, stuff like that. It seems like um, a lot of times organs or awful will get some, some just relatively unpopular cuts get kind of lumped into exactly. that category. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. oxtail or, or mm-hmm. um, ears, like pig ears and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, skin and bones, you know, like yeah. I, I haven't, I didn't really include like skin and bones in my blog for many years, but um, I get so many questions now. I'm like, I should post a lot more stuff on this. Or blood. So, yeah. Blood. Exactly. Um, blood is hard to get. You have to know a farmer. I mean, you can get some of it yeah. sometimes, but somewhere. I mean, I've it's gotten it before. Really hard. Blood co- coagulates um, very early. So, I mean, it's one of those things where if you have access to it, you use it immediately or you continue stirring it so it doesn't, um, you know, coagulate. Okay. And, you can, and then you can use it immediately to like make a sausage or something. But, you know, like if you don't, if you're not processing the animals yourself, you're not going to necessarily have access to those. And the times that I've had access, it's been kind of tricky and frozen and, you know, it's always, you know, I think they use vinegar or something to keep it from coagulating so you can still use it. Okay. But. Okay. Yeah. Cause whenever we've processed our, when we processed our last round of chickens or when we've processed chickens before, um, it's co- coagulated by the time we're done processing. Right. Like it's just a, you know, solid lump. Right. Um, I feel like it just kind of had to be like, in on the like you know there had to be like a person on the farm whose job a child or something was to like continue stirring that so that they could get it in the house and process it or use it in some way mm-hmm. right or do something with it or yeah make blood pudding or mm-hmm. sausage obviously something mm-hmm. hmm. are there different blood like is there a specific animal that you would use blood from more likely like you're more likely to use blood from a cow because like don't the maasai drink mm-hmm. blood and milk milk yeah together yeah and actually my husband read a book about um it's like an old banking book it was like uh it was about a guy it was a biography maybe somebody who was like an outlaw or something like turn of the century 1900 early 1900s and there was a chapter where he took a job in a meat processing facility and everyone had a metal cup that was basically on their belt. And at lunch, they would just scoop blood off the floor and drink it. Oh, my. Wow. So this is like I'm in the slaughterhouses sure. of like 19, you know, 15 Ooh. in America. <laughs> like it was just food. Yeah. Um, interesting. So. Oh, how clean do you think that was? I mean, I think that early <laughs> industrialization, um, you know, like there was a lot of problems with with um, yeah. the industrial revolution and like the like cleanliness of cities in the beginning. At the same time, like that was real food for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, that could probably, and I don't know. I mean, it's, maybe it's like raw milk, right? Like raw milk is right. actually um, resistant to, to some level of pathogen because it has so much like living beneficial bacteria inside of it if these animals were like freshly slaughtered and you're scooping it up right there, I mean, I don't know. But mm. I'm going to say no thank you on that one though. Like just scooping yeah. it up off the floor. I know that I think I've only used um, orc blood, which I had access to in Chicago a couple of times. And um, when I think about blood, it's kind of weird because I know that with pigs, like, you know, the Western Price Foundation, for example, has the recommendations that you prepare them in traditional ways, which is like marinating, curing, or served with a ferment. But um, my 
my mom's family of origin is Portuguese and like there's just been so many pig slaughters and goat slaughters in my life. So I guess like those two like seem more accessible to me for some reason. But I definitely like, I did not see the slaughters, but I definitely went to cousins' houses when I was growing up where like a goat had been slaughtered that morning and it was like being cooked and we ate the whole thing, but not the organs. I don't know where they were. My mom definitely like did us the favor of keeping us away from those because she was like, oh, I had enough. So mm. I do remember. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I do remember a time in Chicago when we did have access mm-hmm. think, through McCullough. Exactly. To, it was pork blood and you gave mm-hmm. me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you suggested I use it in a meatloaf. So I did, but mm-hmm. yeah. And I have that recipe on my site actually. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the only time I've ever used it because of the way it coagulates it, it can be a binder, you know, like cream or egg or something like that. Huh? So that's what, I mean, that's why sausage and things like that. I mean, it's a very natural vehicle to use in those types of recipes. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so, I know you said that you've been around, you know, slaughtering and all that, but not, you did not grow up eating organ meats. Oh no, not at all. I definitely, I mean, my, I, my mom and my grandma, like we, they cooked everything from scratch. My mom had a huge garden, but we were definitely on the standard American diet and following the food pyramid. And, uh, I definitely remember like the day that we went from 2% milk to nonfat. And, uh, that was a really was sad, sad day in my life, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was a really sad day. Like my mom was like, I think you guys are big enough. Like we have to make the switch, you know, it's the right thing to do. So, um, the eighties were a sad time. I know. I know. (laughs) All that blue milk. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So how did you get from, from, you know, A to B, how'd you get from there to where you are now with your relationship? I mean, I, I had a friend come over for dinner one time, and uh, this was somebody who was kind of a mentor to me, somebody who I didn't know super well, but I respected, and I knew that they were coming through town, and I invited them to our home, and I talked to somebody, I talked to, you know, her, her like, assistant, and said, hey, does this woman have any food preferences or allergies? And they said, well, she eats a paleo diet, and I didn't even know what that was. I'd never heard of something like that. And the woman, the assistant basically said, well, you know, why don't you check out, like, Mark's Daily Apple? Uh, Mark Sisson's blog at the time and you know you'll figure out what it is and you can prepare something accordingly and I ended up just making like a roast chicken with potatoes and I think I served like figs for dessert and um oh and like you know vegetable on the side but it was just like all real food like there was just no grains pretty much right it was just like foods without grains and I was like it had never dawned on me you could live like that <laughs> and I had so, I mean, what, what, what was the food pyramid? I mean, I don't even remember exactly, but like 12 to 14, like 14 to 16, 10 to 12 servings of grains every day, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> unbelievable amount. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, I mean, that was the healthy way to eat. Right. So anyway, I was baffled by this. So she came to dinner and I was like, what is this? Like, how did you find this food way? Like, and she was like, well, this is like obviously the right food way because this is how people have eaten through all of time. Like, and, uh, and so she said, you know, I, I think that you would really benefit from reading this book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. I think you would like it. I'd never heard of it before. I went to the library. I checked it out. You know, it's due in three weeks. And I read it. And I was reading this book. And I was just telling my husband, I was like, oh, my gosh, something's going to have to change. Like, things are going to have to change. And I was reading it. And, you know, two and a half weeks later, I, like, closed that book. And I, like, went into our pantry. And I just threw out everything. I threw out all the displacing foods of modern commerce. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the white flour, all the oils, like all the stuff. I just threw it all out. It's like, this stuff is poison. I don't want it in our house. We're not doing any of this. I bought a, you know, this was before like the mock mill. I bought this huge, like 
uh, grain mill, which was like sounded like a you know jet airplane taking off in our house. And I started buying whole wheat and you know, I really wore thin the pages of like nourishing traditions in the grain section. Like literally they were like falling out of the book because I had to like preserve our lifestyle, right? Like that was all we ate. And so I like had to keep eating those things, but like do it the right way. So it was like soaking and souring and like sprouting grains. But I knew, I knew from reading Nutrition and Physical Regeneration that, you know, the thing that, I, if you don't know about that book, it's basically a series of case studies where Weston Price is going around the world and he's visiting all these uh, indigenous or traditional peoples and cultures all around the world from the South Pacific seas up to the Eskimos and everything in between. And when he goes to these different, then he's like documenting the food ways and he's actually taking food samples back to the United States and like testing them for nutritional status in his laboratory in Cleveland, Ohio. So, and he has like the case studies throughout the book. And then he has some research studies where he's like showing the qualities of the food and the important qualities and how, if he uses the soil that these people have, like the, you know, things will grow differently and they have these different nutritional properties. So, all of the elements of these lifestyles are important starting from the soil. But the thing that, that linked these cultures was not, you know, preparing the grains. It was not soaking and sprouting grains. I mean, the thing that linked all these cultures is that every one of them had sacred foods and those sacred foods were, you know, prized in the community for fertility and for growing children and just for, you know, robust vitality and good health and wellness. And, and they were um, special foods and, Weston Price basically had to earn the respect of many of these tribes in order to get access or to learn what they were because they didn't want to tell him. Well, like only when they trusted him as somebody who was not an outsider and who had their interests at heart, would they reveal what these foods were. And so as it turns out, these foods were effectively the foods that had the fat soluble vitamins. And uh, so vitamins A, D, E, and K, primarily A, D, and K. He didn't know what vitamin K2 was at the time. So he called it activator X in the book. It didn't have a name in the 1930s. And um, this really resonated with me. I thought these are the, you know, it's not like soaking and sprouting the grains is not going to get me where I want to go. Like I need to, um, I need to bring these sacred foods into our life. And so what was interesting about the sacred foods is they were different. Like he found in all these places, they all had different food ways because they were in different parts of the world. They had access to different kinds of food, but the things that they had in common were these fat soluble vitamins. And so arthropods as a species are very high in fat soluble vitamins. And so um, those are the insects of land and sea. So, um, insects, you know, like it's very popular now, like cricket meal and things like that. And then also the insects of the sea, like crab and lobster. What's interesting is that like, I just bought some crab this week and um, you, you don't get the nutrient dense part of it. You know, they give you the muscle meat, the, all the middle part, like they take it out for you, they clean it and you just get the legs and stuff. So it's all removed and probably thrown out, but um, that tamale and stuff. But that is the way that I grew, you know, like in a Portuguese, I grew up in California in a Portuguese family. We ate a lot of seafood and we definitely ate um, the inside parts of those animals, like spoon and spoon out all that stuff. And so I was happy to eat all that, but it, it's not as easy to access. And, um, and in our culture, we don't really have a culture of eating like insects. So that was kind of off the table for me. Like, where would you even get that? I mean, it's hard enough to get organ meats 10 or 12 years ago. Like I didn't know anybody. I did not know a single person in my life that ate like this. I didn't know what the Western Price Foundation was. I didn't know there was a community of people that ate like this. Like I had read the book, the very back of the book had said published by the Price Pottinger Foundation. I like wrote a check to write a donation to this foundation because I just thought this was like the greatest thing ever that they were keeping this book in print. And it was actually a year or two before I even found out that there was a Western Price Foundation, which was kind of promoting these foodways at large. And um, that was great to learn about. And I went to my first conference, I think in like 2014, I was like amazed that there were all these people that, you know, were kind of into this, but even still, like I did not know a single person that was eating organ meats or anything like that, but I started, um, I just started looking for farmers 
like you can't buy this stuff. I mean, now you can actually find some of the stuff at the grocery store, but I can assure you that 12 years ago in downtown Chicago, I could not find any of these cuts in the grocery store. And, and I was, you know, I also like, wasn't sure I wanted to eat them from the grocery store. I was really like coming off of like a primarily plant-based lifestyle. You know, I was not a vegetarian so much, but I had been eating a plant-based diet for a long time. Um, really, cause I believed, you know, the mainstream rhetoric that this was the way to be. And of course I had grown up in the low fat paradigm and all that. So red, we did not eat a lot of red meat when I was growing up. We had a lot of chicken and white fish, but not a lot of red meat. So yeah, so I had to find the farmers and then I had to ask the farmers for these cuts. And as it turns out, nobody wanted them. They were like, they were very, very cheap back then. Uh, a lot of them were free and a lot of them were like, you know, two to $5 a pound. Um, if that, so um, yeah, and I just started buying everything. And I also really, really wanted to support the farmers. I just felt so passionate about that. So it was really important to me to support the farmers. Wow. I love love that story. Okay, I will just say really quickly, in Maryland, we have this thing um, where like every summer for and for ev- almost every holiday in the summer, you'll have like a crab feast. And mm-hmm. um we, you sit around for hours on these tables that are lined with newspaper. Takes forever to eat it, right? Yeah, <laughs> if you're actually so eating the whole inside. Yeah, yeah. So and you right because we just boil them whole, right? And then and then everybody sits around and picks it, and it's kind of funny because it's really not a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Um, because it just and it takes forever, but it's not about it's not necessarily even about the crabs. I don't actually like crab, but um, which that's why. I always feel like I shouldn't say I'm from Maryland, but, um, <laughs> but like most people don't eat, you know, cause you, you open it up. I've, I've taught many people how to pick a crab because I know, um, even though I don't eat it. Um, but you, you, when you open it up, it's got all of the lungs and it's, and it's like a yellow bit. Mm-hmm. Everybody calls it the mustard. Mm-hmm. So you, I know some people who eat the mustard, but I've never heard of people eating the other stuff inside of it. Well, yeah, that is, that's what it is. I, like we call it the tamale. Right? Okay. Okay. So, so the yellow yeah, like stuff. It's the greenish yellow stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, okay. it's interesting because like in it's French like cooking. Lungs? No, no. It's, oh, it's okay, just like okay. that. It's just I mean, that. Yeah, yellow. that creamy stuff. I and mean, that's where the fat soluble vitamins are. Oh. So, and actually in French cooking, like if you look at Julia Child, like old recipes, um, she'll take the muscle meat and then she'll, she'll just use that tamale and she'll take it out and she'll put it in the sauce and that will become part of the sauce. Hmm. You know, okay. in the traditional that's preparation. Interesting. So in where my mother is from, she lives on, on the coast. She grew up on the coast. And so crabs and lobster were definitely a part of, you know, a staple of her diet. And I remember, I love crab, but, you know, grew up eating it anytime I would go. And I remember seeing my grandmother, my aunts, my, you know, everyone in my family sitting there eating crab and they always ate the stomach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they created, it was, you know, tradition in Guayaquil to have a, like a red onion, um, cilantro, a, a few other things, sort of kind of like salad-ish. And you would put that inside of the stomach of the crab and mix it all together. And then you would eat that. Um, like, like out that. of the shell? Yeah, completely okay. out of the shell. You'd put it inside the shell mm-hmm. and eat it like that. And that sounds so good. As a kid, yeah, I remember seeing them eat from the stomach and thinking, well, that's gross. I'm not doing that. Um, and I would stick to the muscle meat. And mm-hmm. now as an adult, um, I, you know, I would totally go back and try the, the stomach of the crab. So that's, that's cool. 
So Janine, one of the things that uh, I remember from physical and de- nutrition, physical degeneration is how Dr. Price witnessed that a lot of these different cultures would discard the muscle meat and they would choose yeah. to eat just the organs. And I want to touch a little bit about the connection between eating organ meats and the environment and like supporting your farmers and stuff. Can you just go into that? Yeah, there's a couple places that we can take this. It's kind of like an interesting question that comes up and um, about just like how much should we eat? And um, I think that this is like, it's just kind of, it's kind of a, another consideration in that argument actually is that it, when traditional cultures had an excess, they would actually use the muscle meat for animals or discard it right? And they would preserve the organ meat. So in some sense, we can think about, um, I mean, I guess there's two questions. Do you want me to jump into this? Like how much should we eat? Or do you want me to go back to um, kind of let's, the environment and let's do the environment the whole first, animal? and then we'll go back to, um, yeah, how much should we eat? So, so first environment. Well, um, I mean, there's also a couple points here. So one is that uh, using the whole animal, like eating nose to tail and kind of preserving and using everything. There's one element of that. And another element is just like our modern efforts to kind of recreate environments that may have been more similar to what traditional people experienced, like the Plains Indians and the bison, right? 80 million bison and these migratory grazing patterns and uh, ruminants will cluster together to keep predators at bay and then, um, you know, migrate and and move across the grasses. And so that is something that is reflected today with rotational grazing in, uh, you know, pastured farming. And so moving the animals from place to place and kind of trying to mimic these patterns. And that, that has like really regenerated, I, I guess that open grazing can, can actually wear down the land because the animals will preferentially feed on the best grasses and then it will leave all the other grasses. And so over time, the best grasses get depleted and then the soil structure, all that starts to erode. There can be some degradation of the soil, but when, Farmers are rotational grazing. This is mimicking these patterns from before. And um, and so there's so many benefits that are actually happening and it's actually increasing topsoil because what happens is that all of the grasses are kind of eaten down and then they all have the opportunity to grow up as the cattle pass through, as the ruminants pass through. And so um, that just builds like deeper roots. And these are perennial grasses, like the grasses that were there and the grasses that are used in pasture farming today are typically perennial grasses. They don't, you don't need to replant them every year as annuals. And so they end up with deeper and deeper roots. And that's basically carbon sequestering, right? That takes that carbon and puts it underground into deep roots. And on the prairie roots, these can be 15 to 20 feet deep, like extremely deep roots that we can't even imagine for a grass that's only five feet tall, you know, three times or more underground. Um, so there's that. And then also because of those deep roots, it just creates a lot of pathways for absorbing water. And um, like, instead of having like kind of runoff and drainage like that, like that water kind of gets into the water table and into the landscape. And uh, and then of course, it, it all of this supports the soil biome and the soil biome, like having a robust soil biome is kind of essential to, like, you know, this is, we are part of an ecosystem and it's all connected. So having this robust soil biome is, um, is essential to just like the local ecosystem and all of the things, right? Like building up from the worms to the birds, to all the creatures, all the insects and critters on the land and um, having a really robust environment with a lot of insects and like small animal life is like what allows a larger uh, type of life like our own to thrive. So there's definitely a relationship with all that. And I felt um, very passionate about supporting these types of farmers when I, especially when I first 
started eating meat, more meat in general. And especially that was at the same time I was diving into organ meats. I just kind of went all in. I really actually hardly ever cooked meat in our home before my days of organ meats because I didn't eat a lot of meat. And so I would just like eat it out mostly because I didn't really know how to cook it. And uh, because I ate so much like chicken and white fish growing up, I really was kind of allergic to those foods. I, I mean, I love fish, but I just, I probably actually had more fish at home, but I, I really like, I still have a distaste for chicken in general. Um, I just, I, like a chicken breast, I feel like is like the grossest meat to me. Like people would be like, oh, like this weird organ meat. It's so jiggly and weird. I'm like, try it. Chicken breast, like so gross. <laughs> it's like flabby white, like piece of meat. And like, it's kind of a little bit slimy or something. I don't know. I, I actually have an aversion to chicken in general. I don't love it. Um, I've gotten, I've gotten over like my, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know. I just ate too much of it growing up. I guess that's how my mom feels about organ meats. <laughs> like, but I just, I, ate too much of it growing up. I, don't, I don't need that like plain white meat. So I was just learning how to cook meats in my home at the same time. I was learning how to cook organ meats actually. But um, so it was really important to me to buy from these types of farmers that were, I had, you know, I had read Fast Food Nation in college, I think, and like kind of learned about the confined animal feeding operations. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't support that. That was one part of the reason I didn't want to eat meat. I also like bought into the plant-based rhetoric and um, that that was a healthier path. And growing up in California where we have plants grow all year and I had a garden in my backyard my whole life, I thought, of course, these are the healthy foods. Like these are foods that we always had. And um yeah, so I really, for me, it was really important to kind of seek out these types of farmers um, when I was purchasing meat in the beginning because it was, I was not really 100% on board with eating meat, but I knew that this was the path at that time after I had read Western Price. And so I was like, okay, I have to find the people that are supporting the land and that I could justify this behavior because I can't support these feeding operations and like the corn and all the stuff. So I do not want to put my, like I'm voting with my dollars every meal and I do not want to put my dollars into that system. So to the extent that I can opt out, then I, I want to find these farmers. And I was lucky to live in a big enough metropolitan area that had pasture land around it that there, I was able to find some of those farmers by going to farmer's markets and, um, and just talking to people. So I had, yeah, so I was able to, I found a couple of farmers early on and those farmers have become friends of mine, quite frankly. Like I was so, I learned so much from them and I respected them so much and I um, cared so much and I, and I was purchasing my meat exclusively from them for many, many years. And ultimately we left Chicago and I had to find other sources of meat, but um, yeah. All right. Should we move on to maybe a practical application? What do yeah, you think? Corey? Sure. Yeah. I know that you guys, I think Corey got a lot of questions. So or wherever you're at. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's wait. Let's just start with um, like kind of like <laughs> what would you say is the gateway organ meat or recipe? Not not organ meat, Ooh, but recipe. like recipe. Like what is the way that you're able? I mean, your kids are are used to it, right? Mm-hmm. But if but you know most people are not. So when you're, you know, helping people to come to a love of awful, mm-hmm. what would, what do you suggest people make first? Yeah, well, I would probably say a pate. I mean, and definitely a lot of bacon, right? Because I think it is easy. And also, I mean, even if that is too flavorful, I mean, you could even put jam on it, right? Or fresh fruit, some kind of fruit on it, like a grape sliced in half or figs or like something sweet, peaches. I mean... You can put fruit right on top of it and that would give it a sweetness. And um, like you said, on some sourdough bread, I think that's really a gateway. That's a pretty easy way to get started with um, the most important meat. I mean, heart is does not have any 
weird or organy flavors and it's a muscle meat. So it's a, it's a consistency and texture that's more similar to muscle meat that people are used to. So I think that heart is also really easy place to start. And I, this might be counterintuitive, but I would definitely say that a rare heart is like the closest thing to a rare steak and it doesn't have a lot of off flavors. So if you can eat a rare steak, you could definitely eat some rare heart either grilled or just pan fried seared and like rare in the middle. And that's going to have a really nice texture and uh, be, I think it's delicious. So good. Um, very easy to eat. So I think those two are, are really easy. If you like fatty meats, then tongue, I, I don't know. So good. So rich and tender, like meat that's kind of like falling apart and really rich then. That's what I would say. I would say for if you're getting started and you want to like figure out recipes, like if you're looking for recipes, then, um, you know, ginger, I think cuts the flavor of liver, bacon, of course, everything goes well with bacon like that, you know, as a friend to everybody. And then um, I would say allspice is like another special meat or like herb spice for liver. For some reason, it kind of cuts through the minerally aspect and, um, and just kind of provides like more of an earthy bodied flavor. So those, those are easy so places to start. What are people, um, I don't know if you've ever had people like reach out to you and say, Hey, you know, I really can't stand this particular oh, aspect yeah. of it. Like what, what advice do you have for those people? Well, okay. So I actually think that most, um, organ meats are prepared quite poorly because people don't really know what they're doing with them and they're not like yeah. regular muscle meats. So, um, I actually have this framework that it's like this connective tissue framework that I like to fall back on. And I, and I kind of refer to it as a compass, like it's like a compass. If you're like lost in the woods and you're not really sure which way to go, you pull out your compass and that's going to tell you which direction, you know, which, which, which direction to go in. And, and that's going to put you on a path. And so that's how I feel about this connective tissue framework. It's like a compass. And, um, Basically, the, the situation is that organ meats tend to have more connective tissue than muscle meats. Connective tissue is like scaffolding in your body. It's like um, more framework and structure. And, um, and so you can imagine all of your organs would need more of this than muscle meats have. And I have this analogy. I grew up in the Bay Area and the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, we used to go for field trips when I was growing up. And there's right at the entrance to the park um, at the base of the bridge, there's like this cross-section of one of the cables of the Golden Gate Bridge and the cross-section is basically filled. One big cable on the bridge has like 25 or 26,000 little cables inside of it. That's how the cables are made up. They're made up of thousands of little cables and then they're all put together into one cable and that's where the strength and structure comes from. And that's exactly the same for connective tissue. That if you can imagine this cable with all of these fibers going through it, like all those little cables inside of it, that's the connective tissue. And then the, they're all held together by this glue. And in the case of connective tissue, that glue is, um, is basically like collagen. So that that's the structure of it. And so if you have a good sense of how much connective tissue these different organs have, then you can approach them differently. So um, if basically the thing about connective tissue is that if you cook it, at a low temperature, you serve it rare, 135 degrees, a rare thing. It's like, you know, red in the middle, then, um, then you're fine. All of your cables are just like in place and nothing has really happened to them. They haven't really been, the structure hasn't changed in any way. But if you hit 140 degrees, which is just like a not even medium cooking, 
then what happens is that all of those fibers are going to seize up and they're going to get really tight. And what that looks like in the pan is that your meat will curl up on the edges and it will be really dry. And, um, and then when that happens, you end up in kind of this danger zone where everything is really bad. Like think of, so if you have a steak and it's like rare and you cut it and it's like really tender and it's like juicy and delicious. But if you overcook that steak, then imagine that you try to cut through it and it's really tough and you go to chew it and it's like very tough and dry and it's like hard to chew. So it's kind of just like that, except it's a lot worse because there's a lot more connective <laughs> tissue in organ meats than there are in muscle meats. So now you've like ended up in like a really bad spot. But this is, I think this is pretty much the status quo for how people cook organs in the United States. So um, because they don't have a lot of experience with them and we don't have a cultural relationship with them and like people don't really know how it goes. So, and then if you basically take that meat that is like, now it's like just curled up at the edges and dry and, um, and tough and you, and you cook it for a really long time, then what happens is that over time, those fibers all relax and then they become very tender. And um, so this is like a long, slow cook. And so the, those fibers become very tender. And then when they become tender, what happens to all that collagen, the glue that was holding them together is that it basically melts and it turns into gelatin. And then you have this really rich and flavorful and unctuous like, broth that this meat is swimming in. And you end up with something that is beautiful and delicious and what I consider to be like really the ultimate grandma food. You know, this is like why other cultures in the world, like every culture has their own recipe for tripe, like every culture, like all the Eastern European cultures, right? Like the Italian grandma, um, African Caribbean soups in South America, like everyone is eating this food. It's amazing. It's delicious. But for us, we're like, what is that? That's so weird. And like, I don't know how to cook it. And like, I probably don't have the patience to cook it long enough for it to be truly delicious and tender. A, a great example of food that people are generally familiar with that has a lot of connective tissue is octopus. So, you know, if you eat octopus and it's like just grilled and it's basically rare, it can be so like beautiful and tender, but most of the time it's like rubbery and tough and dry. But if you have a really nice preparation of it, like I used to have this recipe that I would make where it was, um, oh, I've just lost the word, where you cook something in oil for a really long time, like when you're making rillettes, um, confit. So if you like confit this octopus in, uh, in oil, like on a low temperature for many hours, then you're going to take it out of the pot and it's like meltingly tender. It's like the best octopus you've ever had. It's like this perfect meat that's like on it. You know, you can put it on a salad and it's like a meaty, it's like meaty, but it's like just like tender and really, really good, right? So that is basically what you can do with your organ meats if you like take them to that level. And so I think that most people just cook them in the middle and they're stuck there. And so they tend to think that all these organ meats are really bad, but actually just having an understanding of um, the properties of each organ will give you a, like that is your compass. That will point you in the direction of like which way to go with that particular organ. And so, um, I don't know, like name an organ, right? So, so do you have this on your website? Do you have this written out or something? Or um, I don't have it written out, but um, I have it. So, I mean, basically I have, now that I've put together the liver lover challenge, I mean, I have all these recipes and they tend to follow these guidelines, right? Like I'm either like offering rare recipes or I'm offering these well-cooked recipes, but I um, mean, I can see on my site, like things that are in the middle ground and can adjust my recommendations, but like grilling, for example, is really tricky because it's hard to get this sweet spot with grilling. Right. And, um, but you know, some people like I, when I first started this, I didn't know anybody who was cooking like this. I didn't know what I was doing at all. And so everywhere I went, I would just like go into, I would like read all these old cookbooks in the library, any used bookstore, I would go look, like, flip through the indices of cookbooks and see if they had organ meats. And I would read everything I could about them literally sitting on the bus, I would like talk to old ladies and ask them if they grew up ordering, eating organ meats and like how their mom used to eat them or prepare them or if they remember recipes they like, like everywhere I went, I would be like talking to people and asking them. 
And um, this is kind of how I learned these things. And I, I pieced these to these things together over time. But I, you know, what I found is that some people like just really had more questions and like they were more hands-on and, um, and they were like, they were like visual learners and they wanted to see more of it. And that's finally, like I, after so many questions over the years, I finally, you know, prepared my class last year, the liver lover challenge and, um, and started offering that. And that has been so amazing to just work with people hands-on and to go through this in really thorough detail. I have, um, I don't know, hours of like, I have so many frameworks about like how everything works. I have, I have frameworks for like how to overcome all the hurdles and, you know, the connective tissue framework. And um, just like, I don't know, I, I guess I, my, I have an analytical mind. I have an engineering background. I'm always kind of thinking about like how to put these, how to organize everything and kind of compartmentalize it and, and have like a clear guidance on what to do. So um, yeah, so now I have the liver lover challenge and, um, and that has been really awesome. So. Yeah. And I mean, I, I personally went through the class and I can't speak highly enough about it. I mean, I can't speak. Wow. Um, it was a wonderful class and incredibly helpful. And like you said, you went through different steps of obviously how to prepare them, but also how to mentally, um, yeah, mentally prepare yourself for making that organ meat. And, mm -hmm. So I, I would love if you talked a little bit about like how, how, do, how does the average person overcome that hurdle, that mental hurdle of like... Oh my gosh, it's such a big barrier. Yeah. Culturally. Yeah, I think there is a really big cultural barrier. And, you know, there's one example that I saw, like my husband read this book, Sapiens. I, I've only kind of flip through it. I actually think I listened to the audiobook, but he showed it to me. And there's this example of uh, King, that book is basically saying that all our constructs are kind of created by the culture. Like a lot of things that we believe, we think that they're near and dear to us and personal to us and our true heartfelt beliefs. But a lot of times it's just a cultural influence and that in a different culture and a different environment, you would see things very differently. And one of the examples that they showed was King Louis XIV of France. And he is, you know, like the leader of the free world effectively at that moment in time in the 1700s. And he's like free world, just the, the world. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. I agree. And um, correction accepted. And he's basically wearing like a wig and high heels and tights. Right. And it's just like so funny. Cause like, if you took somebody like the, you know, CEO of a fortune 500 company today or the president or somebody else and, uh, and, somebody who identifies as male and put them in a wig and high heels and tights. Like they would, they, that would be like the laughing stock, you know, like that's not a thing. That's like not a thing in our culture. Right. <laughs> so it's comical. And even like George Washington, right. Like in his wig with like the little curls at the bottom and all that stuff. I mean, that's just not the way that we operate at this moment in time. And so we have all these beliefs and um, I really relate to this, that we have a culture where if you go like, and I invite you to do this, like, while you're listening to this or afterwards, but just the next time you're on Google, just type in healthy foods and click on the images button. And like, you are going to see a, like an array of beautiful platters of colorful vegetables. And this is our cultural paradigm. Like that's a fact. If you Google healthy foods, you will find many beautiful plant foods and, um, and all of their special properties. You know, like, never mind that these are like actually plant toxins meant to keep things away, right? That we're like ingesting and, you know, there is the hormesis effect where like small amounts of them can can do as well. But like over time, ingesting lots and lots and lots of them may actually be just a, not advantageous, right? But that's not, that's not the, 
the rhetoric or the paradigm that we are operating from. And so I think that resetting your paradigm and considering how maybe the beliefs that we have or the things that we think are gross or not gross are really just um, a cultural context because, you know, we all read Fantastic Mr. Fox and, um, you know, the farmer that would eat the goose livers was just so disgusting and smelled so bad. And, you know, and that Curious George, like, you know, had to eat his liver and, you know, and was like forced, you know, and there's like, a he's like, poking, he's peeking in the window, right? Of somebody's, he's climbed up some building and window washing and the poor kid has to eat liver or something, you know, and like, it, there's so many references in our culture to how terrible organ meats are. And our parents may have been served organ meat. Like there's actually a lot of adults out there that I talk to that say, oh my gosh, liver and onions, that was the best. Like I grew up eating it. I love it. I miss it. I don't even know where to find something like that these days. But there's a lot of people that are like, oh, it's horrible. These are strong flavors and they're also unique textures. Like the texture of liver is different than the texture of muscle meat, full stop. And the texture of kidney is just different than the texture of liver, different than the texture of muscle meat. So these are, they're different foods. And so I do think there is some amount of getting used to them. And, uh, you know, this notion that we have to have 15 to 20 exposures to a food. I believe that this is true. I mean, I could, I could not, I personally would like make these meals. I had little people, so I would serve it. Like that's what they ate. And then they didn't know any different. They were hungry. They ate the food. My husband was, bless his heart, always on board. He just ate whatever I served. And he actually liked it. He thought it was good. So, but I could not eat these foods. I would just, I would sit down at the table last. I had this very methodical way of like cutting these very small pieces and chewing and chewing and chewing. It was, it was like very difficult. But I have to say that over time, what happened is I, 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 like right away, I knew that I felt better. And then over time, I actually would look forward to Monday nights when I was making liver. And then, you know, and then I actually started to crave them. So I, I do think there's something to be said for this like 15 to 20 times. Like if you go to a different country or living in a different culture and there's a food that they have there, you know, whether it be like a fish sauce or a fish paste or a kimchi or, you know, there are very strong flavors all over the world, um, sour and fermented foods and bitter foods. Like we don't have a lot of bitter foods in our culture. Um, not that organ meats are bitter necessarily, but I'm not eating bile lately, but, um, I don't know. So I just think that there is some amount of like reframing our experience and also having the motivation, like what is your intention and why? And I think that when you understand the nutrient density of these cuts, like I have, I've kind of gone through the USDA nutrient database and pulled all the organ meats and just kind of um, paired them up with like muscle meats and looked at how they compare, you know, raw versus cooked or how they compare to muscle meats or how they compare um, just across all the foods that we consider to be superfoods. And if you look at this data, you look at these charts, I mean, you'll find, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like muscle meats are just like this bar at the very bottom. And then it's like heart, kidney, liver, you know, like, or whatever organs you want to put on there that like, they just, they're outpacing in all of the water soluble vitamins and minerals. And then the fat soluble vitamins, you can't even chart it because there are no fat soluble vitamins in most of these other food sources. There's very small amounts in milk and egg yolks if it's pastured primarily, but um, or fortified from the grocery store. Most people in America get their fat soluble vitamins from uh, orange juice and um, breakfast cereals and fortified milk. So, I mean, those are the primary sources of these of these nutrients because we don't have them in our diet in a whole because they come from these weird foods, like foods that we are not accustomed to eating anymore. So if you have a motivation, I believe that you can be healthy in many, many ways. And I do believe that the placebo matters and that your thoughts matter and that 
if you believe like whatever you believe is true is like works for you, right? Like that, that, that your body will align with those beliefs. But for me, like I had a, an experience and a belief that food mattered, especially after I started changing my diet and experienced profound differences in like energy and wellness that, um, like I have those beliefs. And so it lines up with like my way of the world. It, it, it works for me. So can you touch on, since we're kind of there right now, can you touch on the idea of, um, like optimization. Oh yeah. I love this idea. Optimization. Really, yeah. yeah. So actually like I told you the story about my friend, um, bringing or suggesting to me that I read nutritional physical degeneration. But the fact is that I studied industrial engineering in undergrad. And in my course, I had, took a linear uh, programming class. And one of the problems that we had to solve was going to McDonald's and getting the menu and, um, and figuring out how to meet the RDA at McDonald's for the lowest cost, how to meet your nutrients. And, and so we, you know, wrote out this program and we had to solve it. This was, I mean, there were computers then and we were able to use them for some problems. So this is like actually like solving by hand and there's like iterative matrices, like math problems that would take many pieces of, you know, like that green gridded engineering paper, if anyone knows what I'm talking about, um, to solve these problems. And so what came up is that the, you know, the first like thing that comes to the surface in this equation is, is the hamburger actually, like the red meat <laughs> comes to the surface first, but, um, this was an actual problem that I solved in college. And I thought it was so interesting. I loved doing this problem set. And I, you know, I remember it fondly. And then at some point after I read nutrition and physical degeneration, I realized that nutrition does matter, right? Because I didn't, I mean, I knew that vitamins were important, but I didn't really understood how they work together or that it was a thing or that they, you know, your doctor doesn't tell you it matters what you eat. So I didn't really understand that food is the medicine that what we put into our body can support and nourish us. I didn't have a sense of that at all. But after reading Western Price, I was like, oh, the, the nutrients are in the food. So I, so I can only consume so many calories in a day. Like I only get three meals in a day, even if I stuff myself. Like I, my calories are limited based on just like my physical proportion dimensions. How can I maximize the nutrients in those foods? Like in the foods that I actually consume. So this, to me, this is like the ultimate optimization problem. And so I love this idea of optimizing um, like a real world optimization. I could think about every meal, how to optimize that meal, like put the most nutrient dense foods on the plate. And so like, to me, that was just like the best. I was like, I was all in. I was like, I love this. So, so your answer though, in, to get the most out of bang for your buck, say, is, is it's organ meats. Absolutely. Right. It's organ meats. So I mean, it could be, yeah. So it could be crickets or, um, you know, the arthropods or, um, large portions of like raw milk and eggs. But the fact is, is that the organ meats have the highest quantity of the fat soluble vitamins. And here's the thing about the fat soluble vitamins. We didn't totally understand this in the 1930s, but we like, they're so important that in some literature and medical literature, PubMed, things like that, they're actually referred to as hormones. Like they affect every, like everything in our body. And it is argued that actually we cannot even utilize the B vitamins and the water soluble vitamins and the minerals that we consume without the, or without the fat soluble vitamins directing where those nutrients go in our body. I mean, where we are making, like we are regenerating literally billions, trillions of cells every single day in our body. Every day we're breaking stuff down and rebuilding it back up. And the fat soluble vitamins are directing that whole, they are the conductors of this symphony, this orchestra, and they are telling everybody where to do their work and how to do it. So they are the ones calling the shots and and directing all this information in our body. And so without them, 
I mean, how, like, how could these, I don't understand, like, I mean, the systems don't really work super well. Um, it, yeah. So, so to me, the optimization problem was like really getting some of these in our diet in a consistent way and then maximizing the, like the B, the water soluble vitamins, because they're water soluble, we have to replace them like every couple of days at a maximum. Like we have to continually replace them, but the fat soluble vitamins we can store in the fats in our body and then we can have access primarily in our liver and then we can have access to them. So you have to have them on some regular interval so that you have access to them when you need them. And then you have to continually replenish the other vitamins and minerals so that you can um, so to me, this was the optimization problem. This was like, how can you do this without, um, in a way that's like, to me, the most sustainable way to do this. Like, I truly believed that the way to make this sustainable was to make food that tasted good, mm-hmm. right? Like, you can't force yourself to do this. And even if you do force yourself a couple of times, like, that's it, you're done. But if this is a meal that you love and your kids are asking for it, it's very easy to come back to it again and again and again. And so this was like what I endeavored to do with my family. Like this was the optimization of nutrient density in our home was to create meals that were awesome, that really, really worked. So, and then it was just a lot of trial and error, right? Like we, I mean, so I started, when I started this like 12 years ago or more, it was really like, no, we're going to eat organ meats every, my grandma, my late grandma who lived to 101, my mom says that, you know, she's served liver every week, once a week. So I was like, that's what we're doing. We're every Monday night reading liver. That's it. Like that, that's where we're getting our liver. And then we're going to eat the other organ meats, you know, as often as we can. And, um, and then like, just keep whole real foods on our plate. Cause that's, and we're going to get the best quality foods and we're going to optimize this equation in that way, doing the best that we can do like at any given point. Right. Cause it kind of changes over time. And also what you, you know, what you get, like, I think that your needs are there. There's, I think I really believe in this argument of diversity that um, diversity matters in a lot of ways. So diversity matters, like what you're, kind of what is filling you up today is actually not what you need tomorrow because you're filled up on it today. So it's something different that you need tomorrow. And there's so many ways that we can diversify our diet. So we can diversify across the types of animals that we're eating, for example, like not just eating beef or something, but also eating lamb or goat or whatever other protein sources we have access to. And then of course, diversifying across the entire animal, eating all of the cuts because they just have such a diverse, like they just have such different things in them. And, um, and, and really like all more than the muscle meat for the most part. And uh, so, yeah, so diversify. And then of course you can diversify in the plant kingdom tremendously and still not even go into processed foods. I mean, there are so many different foods and in our grocery stores today, you can find so many foods. And that, but even if you just shop locally, I mean, and even if you're not going to eat plants in the wintertime, you can still diversify across animals and across the type of animal. And then of course, I also uh, argued that you can diversify across the farm if you have access to more than one farm that those farms are going to have different types of forage for those animals, even if they're all pastured, that, um, that those, like, we don't really, I, I believe that we, we know a lot about health and nutrition, but we don't totally understand like all the ways that those, um, compounds can just like interact in our body and work in our favor or how they, how they belong together. And when they come from real food, they, they come in the right proportions. So to me, this was like the ultimate optimization problem. Okay. So let me, let me throw in a, um, a uh, devil's advocate question on this mm-hmm. one. What? Because um, I mean, I can just go to the store and buy a multivitamin, right? Totally. So why would I not? What would be the argument for for aside from you know like or um, um, honoring the whole animal or like you know the environmental reasons? What would be the nutritional argument for not just getting what I supposedly need through a multivitamin? 
yeah, I think that is a good argument. And I'm not sure that, um, I mean, I have two things to say about that. One is that I don't know that the multivitamin has everything and it has it in the right proportions that you need, right? So the thing about real food is that you gravitate towards some things that um, that in that moment taste very good to you or that you can't get enough of, right? And so if you have real food on your plate, you'll, you will take up different quantities of things that you need. So I think that there's a sense of that. And the other thing is that I don't know that a multivitamin, like I said, I, I do believe that the, that the placebo matters and that it like your belief system like matters a lot. And given my, like just my own experience in life and the way that I see the world, I have value sets around serving real food to my kids and like having family meal times and preparing real foods. And I feel like I have this, um, kind of all of my job paths in my life have been I, I, to some extent, like environmentalist things. And, um, and I, I have like a love and passion for the natural world and the environment. And for me, preparing and eating real foods for a long time, when I lived in a very urban area, like downtown Chicago, that was my connection to the natural world. Like I would get these foods at the farmer's market and then I would process all these vegetables or like prepare these meats. And I felt like that was my connection to the earth. Like that, that was the natural environment, like in my home that we were not accessing it. We lived in like a concrete playground and that was like, fine. That, that was a season of our life. And I enjoyed all of it. Like there was a really nice season of life for me, but that was my access to the earth and to the environment was actually the time, like all of the foods that I brought into our home. So for me, like that's what it was, but I don't see why somebody couldn't be healthy on their multivitamin. If they, if that's their worldview and that's what they believe about the world, um, I, I believe that our beliefs matter a lot, like very, very strongly will influence how well we do in certain situations. And if you think that's enough for you and like, that's your path, then I think that you can do great on it. So, but for me, it just wasn't my path. It wasn't what I, I never imagined a world where I just like gave my kids a multivitamin and then bought all my food, you know, in packages and didn't, I don't know. That's just not the way I, I wasn't raised that way because like I, you know, I can see the immigrant generation and so could my husband. Um, my husband was actually born abroad and his parents had immigrated. And so, yeah, like both of us have a worldview that includes real food and um, like nuanced flavors and like just like the joy and like a lot of like holidays that centered around food and meal times and things like that. So like that, and that's just a part of my path. But um, I don't know if, that, if that's your path, like then I don't know, maybe this podcast isn't exactly for you or like my work, <laughs> my work is definitely not for you, but like, that's okay. Like I think that you could, you know, like my path is not the only way through the world. Like there are so many ways to like have an amazing, glorious and like life, like full of gratitude and wonder. Right. And this is just like one path. So, and I'm, and I'm happy to share it with anyone who is curious and happens to have something in their heart that's calling them toward the same path. So. So along that same grain, what about the people who say, well, it's just so gross. I'm just going to freeze it, cut it up into tiny chunks and swallow it. Like, and that, and there you go. I've taken my liver or even the people that have uh, decided to go the organ meat capsule route. Um, yeah, I think that those are both like viable paths. Like for me, there was a time kind of at the introduction of these foods and a little before them where my kids were not really well and like I was not really well. And then we kind of found, um, you know, we were, we were seeking for health. And like when you're seeking, like, I don't know, seeking for health is a, is a hard way to live your life, right? Because it, it takes away the freedom of actually living your life. Like when you stop seeking health, then you can actually just live your life and do all the things that you love. And like, you don't have to worry about your health, right? It's only when your health is compromised, but, um, there have definitely been compromises in the path of our family. And so those times have been troubling and there, there were a lot of supplements and like, for, for me, like, I don't know, supplements personally, my path is not a path where I take supplements every day. 
Um, I feel like I am at a point where I take what I need. Um, if I need it, if something's calling to me, I think the body doesn't lie. Um, if I'm getting a cold sore, like I definitely need more lysine. I definitely need more broth. Um, I used to have cold sores continuously, like for years and years and years of my life. I, I get them now every couple of years. That's a good sign that I have too much stress and I really need to slow down. I really need more broth, but I'll also take a lysine. Like I don't, it hurts to have a cold sore. Like I don't want that. Right. The body doesn't lie. So I'm not opposed to that by any stretch, but like, I don't know. I just, I didn't want to be giving my kids pills all the time. Like with my oldest son, we gave him a lot of supplements when he was young. We gave him, you know, digestive enzymes and, um, like HCL stomach acid and all sorts of things to help him absorb the nutrients that he was eating. And, um, that was not, that was not a fun time in our family. So I don't know. I didn't really think about raising my kids, like just giving them pills. Like I said, for me, the most sustainable way to eat the foods that are good for us is to make them awesome and to like have a family value set around them. And so that's the path that, that I've pursued and one that's been like really meaningful and rich for me. And like, I felt like, when my son was two and my daughter was six months old and I was like introducing these foods to our family for the first time that we were so far behind, you know, I had been through two pregnancies that were like largely plant-based and, um, and I, you know, I just felt so behind. Like I felt like they'd missed out on so much. I knew how important the early years were and now, but now that my son is 13 and my daughter's 11 and they're like, they eat everything under the sun. I, you know, I feel so differently about it. I feel like we're now it's like that back then that was their whole life experience and they had none of this. And now they have a much bigger life experience and like 80% of it or 90% of it includes this. So now it feels so different. And, um, and I feel like they have food ways now that they'll carry with them throughout their whole life. Like that this isn't something that like when I, when they leave my house and I stop forcing quote unquote, forcing them to like take their vitamins or eat these organ meats, like that they're going to stop doing that. That's not what it is. It's like a way of life. In fact, tonight, we had steak tartare and, um, and my head, I actually took my 13 year old to New York city a couple weeks ago, um, for the first time. And we just kind of poked around and did some things that he wanted to do. We spent a weekend there together, visited some friends and, uh, we went to there like most of the time we were just running around and because we stayed in a condo at our friend's house that we had a kitchen. So we did eat most of our meals in, but we ate one meal out every day. And I, I was like, okay, we'll go wherever and we'll do anything. And he wanted like New York city pizza and you know, stuff like that. And we did do that, but I was like, we have to go to one nice restaurant. And so we went to this nice French restaurant and, um, and you know, and they had tartare on the menu. We, instead we got the escargot, uh, appetizer instead of the tartare appetizer, but he saw it on the menu. Right. And then tonight when we had our tartare, he was like, oh my God, you guys, when we went to this restaurant in New York city, you know, mom and I went like, we went to this really fancy restaurant and like they had this on the menu and you know, like, I, it's just a different culture in our family. Again, like culture matters so much, right? Now there's this culture where, and it's true. Like if you want to go to a really fancy French restaurant, like this is what you're going to find. If you want to go to expensive restaurants, like the world over, you're going to find these foods on the menu because these are delicacies. And like, these are the special sacred foods that all cultures have preserved and like recognized. And, you know, we've kind of lost it in our modern culture, but like traditional peoples, I don't know. So I, and, and preparing them in a beautiful way is like the, that is the essence of, right? If you get at a really fancy restaurant, it's going to be awesome. It's not going to be crappy. Like, why can't, why can't you have that in your own home? Like, why can't you know what to do with these organ meats and prepare them really well? Like, why shouldn't you have a culture where your kids are like, they're not going to stop eating them when they leave my house. Like, they're always going to know that these are sacred foods and they're going to seek them out, right? I mean, maybe they won't be able to afford them out of my house for a while. I mean, they'll know how to prepare them, but I don't know. I, I just feel like for me, like the most sustainable way to provide this to my kids was to make it something that we loved and make it part of our family culture. I love that. That resonates so much with me. Um, and I, I think with maybe many of our listeners, because the way to connect with our kids and to bring these food values is through food, 
It's through the, mm-hmm. the experience of making it with them, of sitting down and eating it with them. And like you said, making it delicious because that's the warm, fuzzy feeling that you get in your stomach after you have finished a meal with your family. The, mm-hmm. the like, oh, that was so satisfying. And, and that's what you take away with you when you're a 20 something and a 30 something. And, and like, those are the memories that you have. So love it. <laughs> All right. We're going to stop this interview here. Um, and make this a two-parter because we can talk forever. So we will come back in two weeks with a second episode featuring Janine, and we're going to answer all of your burning questions from Instagram. I really can't wait. It's going to be so great. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at NourishTheLittles and online at NourishTheLittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrientSake and online at ForNutrientSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It should not be intended as medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.